It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, it's a big week in Washington as the Pelosi-led house tries to pass the trillion-dollar infrastructure bill, make sure the government doesn't shut down, works to pass bipartisan legislation on the debt ceiling to make sure America's credit rating doesn't crash globally, and works on the huge big government socialist bill that Bernie Sanders developed that people now concede is probably a $5 trillion bill with about a $3 trillion tax increase. But I want to take some time to discuss an economic topic that's going to affect every American's pocketbook, and that's inflation. And as a part of that story, I want to look at the whole supply chain question, because clearly there are things happening in terms of the availability of everything from paint to computer chips for automobiles that are affecting the supply chain. And that's then affecting both price, but also just plain availability. As Kamala Harris said when she was in Vietnam, We better shop earlier than usual for our holiday gifts this year due to these supply chain issues, which people thought was a strange comment to make while you're on a state visit in Vietnam. But I think she had just learned and been briefed on the supply chain problem. We looked around for somebody who could really help us understand inflation and supply chain issues. And we found a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason, somebody who also had written a book called Boom and Bust Banking, the Causes and Cures of the Great Recession. And that's David Beckworth. David, I really want to thank you for joining us. 
I think part of what has the average American confused is they go to the grocery store, they go to the gas station, they see genuine rises in prices that are measurable about commodities that they know because they buy them. And how would you explain to them whether they should worry about that or whether it will disappear as the supply chain sort of unlocks itself? Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker, for having me on your show. Great question. Yeah, this is a very real pain that we are experiencing now. I do think this will disappear probably in 2022, maybe 2023. And let me just give some specific examples for the you know, consumer, like oil, the price of gas. Why are you paying net more for gas now than you were last year? And there's several reasons. One of them is that last year's demand dropped dramatically because we were all locked in because of COVID. And as we reopened the economy, the economy just bursted. It's been growing rapidly. The demand for fuel around the world just shot up through the roof. So there's a huge spike in demand, number one. Number two, OPEC has dialed back its production of oil. And oil production hasn't quite yet responded to the price signal of make more fuel. But I think those things will work out. I know in the meantime, it's not a pleasant story. But in the meantime, we'll have to pay higher prices. Grocery store items, clothing, all of those are being affected as well by a global supply chain story. As well as I think there's another piece I haven't mentioned yet, and that's labor markets. There are a lot of people who haven't returned to the labor force. So I know there's restaurants, there's grocery stores, there's people trying to distribute food from factories to grocery stores. They don't have people to drive trucks. And there's a number of reasons, but the recovery has not been proportionally met with a rise in labor. And so there's a shortage of workers. Now, some of these workers maybe have decided they don't want to go back to the working conditions they had before. Some of it might be tied to the generous unemployment benefits they've received from the federal government. Those things will be ending soon. So if that is a part of the story, I think that will end. We need to increase capacity, shipping, production. We need more people to get back into the labor force. And those things just take time. And hopefully by this time next year, we will see an improvement. Well, you know, all through the 19th century, we were actually the most expensive labor economy in the world. And the result was that we were also the most automated. And I think you're going to see a lot of that in the next two or three or four years. I was just at a restaurant last night that can't get enough workers. I've been at two hotels recently where if you didn't call and ask them to make up your room, they didn't do it because they're now so short of employees. And it's been interesting to watch and see different kinds of shortages, including a labor shortage, and then how people are sort of adjusting to try to cope with it. But I do think probably we have a slight difference in that, and it may be scarred by my having grown up and lived through the the 70s and the early 80s and watched inflation once it gets out of control, because it's a little bit like a wildfire. You have to be very careful or it can really take off and get built into expectations and then you have a real problem. I'm curious because, at least statistically, we both have had a huge volume of savings as a lot of people did not spend the money the government sent them. On the other hand, we've also had an enormous explosion of credit card debt. As an economist, how do you weigh those two things and try to understand them? Well, I think part of what happened with the checks, the unemployment benefits, people were saving them because of precautionary motives. They didn't want to use them. And then some of the credit you're talking about is tied to durable goods that have been purchased as well as housing. If you look at them on a credit going to homes, people taking equity out of their home, refinancing their mortgages, that has exploded as well. 
So credit has gone up during this time, even as savings has gone up, which seems a little confusing. But here's the rest of the story. If you look at the total wealth of the U.S. households, it's also exploded. So if you take total credit that's grown up and divide it by total household wealth, it's still actually much below where it was, say, in 2007 when we had the housing boom-bust cycle, when households were highly in debt and things went south. So we're a long ways from that. And of course, part of the buildup in household wealth has come from, you know, government checks, stimulus, you know, property prices have exploded, all those things. So balance sheets for households are much healthier today. And I think that's part of the story. We sort of transferred the debt away from the households back to the government. That's right. And you know, ultimately, who is the government backed by taxpayers? So at the end of the day, it, it's implicitly still on our balance sheet. But uh, yeah, it, it, it kind of masks the risk. Yeah, it's an interesting circular process we're in the middle of. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On a summer night in Paris, American artist Lee Krasner is drifting off to sleep when the phone rings. On the line, news that her husband, Jackson, is dead. Jackson, as in the painter Jackson Pollock. He might, to this day, 
be the most mythologized figure in American art. But how much of the story that we've been told about him is just that, a myth? On Death of an Artist Season 2, Krasner and Pollock, the story about how the art world changed forever, and the story of the artist who reset the market for American abstract painting. Just maybe not the one you're thinking of. Listen to Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In your New York Times article, Stop Worrying About Inflation, you say, if I can quote you to you, so many influential voices are carrying on as though we're about to relive the 70s. And frankly, I've been one of them. So I'm fascinated to get your interpretation of what you think is happening and what we should or should not be concerned about in the economy over the next few years. So that op-ed was written a few months ago, and what we've seen since then has given me some pause. We have seen you know, higher than expected inflation. Inflation is definitely higher than I thought it would be. Before we get to the specifics of what we've seen, you know, maybe we can step back and ask, what is inflation? What drives inflation? And an easy way for me to think about this is there's two ways it emerges. One is too much government spending, too much money, the demand side. People are spending government spending. The other side, though, is the supply side. You touched on some of it. The global supply chain bottlenecks, computer chips not being produced, ships being held off the coast of California. Those type of inflationary measures are ones that we can't meaningfully address by tightening interest rates, cutting back on spending. We can address the ones caused by too much spending, too much money. And when I wrote that piece to answer your question, what I was seeing, and to a large extent still some of it today, is supply-side inflation. Let me give you an example. Lumber, I don't know if you remember, lumber shot up really expensive. So you could buy, I think, about 1,000 feet of lumber future contracts. It was about $1,500 per contract. It's now down to 500 And the way I look at that is that's capitalism doing its magic. That's the wonder of markets. Suppliers responded. But some things take a lot longer to adjust. I mean, Oil. Oil is a price that's gone up dramatically and it hasn't come back down. We would think, you know, in a perfect world, markets would respond, they'd produce more oil. But there's a number of reasons that hasn't happened. So I think it's important for us to distinguish between inflation caused by supply side, which I think eventually will pass through by next year or late next year, versus demand side inflation, which emerges from, you know, big government spending. You mentioned oil as an example. Europe apparently is about to hit a extraordinarily expensive winter for energy, partially because the Russians, and I don't know the the answer here, you may know this, the Russians have really reduced the flow of natural gas through their pipeline. And I don't know whether that's a political gimmick or whether, in fact, they've had problems in Russia because they have pretty obsolete equipment and are prone to breaking down. And then, of course, in a bizarre way, all of the various wind production that they had built, particularly in the English Channel, there apparently was, in August, no wind, (laughs) which is, you know, you never quite think these things through. But the result is that the renewables were really dropped dramatically in how much energy they were producing at the same time that the amount of natural gas available to fill it was dropping. And so apparently there's a concern that Europe may have 
a very big spike in energy prices this winter, which is both tough on the economy, but it's also really tough on poor people. I mean, when you get that kind of a spike, rich people can afford it because they just have the surplus money. But if you got to put money in your truck or your car just to get to work, you know, I don't know whether the European problem is going to have any direct impact over here, but oil and gas prices tend to be pretty fungible. And if it goes up in Europe, the odds are pretty good it's going to go up here. So that's an example where the shortage, the linkage points are a big problem. I actually just dropped Callista off at a car dealership to get her car fixed. And the guy that she works with there was saying that they weren't able to find the camera for the rear of the car. So when you back up, and so they're literally selling the cars without the cameras with a promise that they'll retrofit them once the supply chain works because the alternative was to stop the whole production line of the cars. So he said, we're actually selling cars that have different pieces missing because of the supply chain. And then we're trying to get a house painted. And the shortage of paint is unbelievable. I mean, I don't know how all these things fit together, but apparently there are like 60 container ships sitting off Long Beach. And I think because there aren't enough trucks to take them out of the port. As an economist, how do you distinguish between the classic sort of Friedman-esque inflation based on too much money and too few goods and a series of almost wartime-like shortages that drive up prices artificially but aren't a function of monetary policy? That's a great question. And to be honest, in real time, it's hard to know that difference. And it can lead to policy mistakes because we don't know what's driving it right here and now. And I think this is a good year is a good example. So all those things you've mentioned, all the supply side bottlenecks, I think are playing a role. But I think you can also reasonably say what the government has done, what the Fed has done, is also potentially putting upward pressure on prices as well. So how do you tease out what part is due to the Friedmanite story you mentioned versus global supply chains. It's going to feel very painful. Speaking to the natural gas and oil, I've been reading the same stories you have. It is likely we're going to have high oil prices, natural gas prices this winter in the U.S. because it is fungible. It's a global market for oil. And there's a lot of things that have emerged that lead to this almost perfect storm of supply-side bottlenecks. Everything shut down during the pandemic. So capacity went down, and now we've revved it up really rapidly, and we just haven't been able to keep up with it. And, I mean, this speaks to a lot of issues. I mean, the importance of getting your trade deals right, the importance of, you know, having labor markets so you can hire people quickly to work at the docks. There's a lot of moving parts here, and I just think sometimes it takes time to work through them when you've gone through something like a war or a pandemic. But to answer your question, yes, in real time, it is difficult to say, is this due to too much spending too much money, or is it due to supply-side bottlenecks? Well, and historically, part of what I'm fascinated by goes back a little bit to your boom-and-bust banking book and the whole way in which that period emerged as a catastrophic shortage of credit, which led to almost paralyzing the system. I I think it was a much closer-run thing than people realized. But it seems to me that Chairman Powell at the Federal Reserve has a very similar problem in that If he were to try to contain inflation by driving up interest rates, the effect that would have on the cost of servicing the federal debt would be staggering in terms of the impact on the whole budget system. 
And so it strikes me, and I'd be curious to get your reaction, that the Fed may have fewer weapons, fewer tools, and less maneuverability than at any time in modern times. I definitely think the Fed and monetary policy in general, both here in the U.S. and overseas and in other advanced economies like the Eurozone, it definitely, I think, has fewer degrees of freedom. But let me go back to this point you're raising about the Fed raising interest rates in response to the current inflation And it makes sense for the Fed to raise interest rates if it's the Friedmanite story you mentioned, if there's too much money out there, too much spending. But if the inflation is being driven by supply-side bottlenecks, the Fed can only do more damage by raising interest rates. I mean, there's nothing good that can come out of, you know, if you have a shortage of raw material, shortage of people, shortage of supplies, jacking up interest rates is just going to make it far worse. You're going to have far more people unemployed. It is important to get that distinction. Is it supply-side inflation or demand-side inflation? Let me give you an example of this. So you mentioned the housing boom-bust cycle, 2008. You probably recall during those years leading up to that, like 2006 to 2008, commodity prices really exploded. Oil was expensive. All kinds of things were expensive. And the Fed actually got nervous. And during the year 2008, between April and October, they did not cut rates, even though the economy was in free fall, because they were worried about inflation, but they were responding to the wrong type of inflation. Over in Europe, the ECB actually tightened policy. And then in 2011, something similar happened. Commodity prices went through the roof. The ECB raised rates twice. So it's important to get the underlying causes of inflation down correctly. In terms of though, the second part of your question relating to is the Fed have you know, less ability to respond. Yeah, there are a lot more pressures on it. I would point out, though, that if there's any silver lining in this, it's that the world still seems to be buying up our debt and keeping interest rate pressures down. So if you look, for example, today at the 10-year Treasury, it's at 1.5%. Just think about that. People around the world are willing to buy a 10-year Treasury bond at 1.5%, and we probably will at least have 2% inflation over that horizon. So in real inflation-adjusted terms, they're actually willing to take a hit just to have a safe store of value. And there's a number of reasons for this. There's this demand for safe assets like treasury bonds that despite the run-up in public debt over the past year, apparently has not been satiated. When we look in Europe, it's very similar. So those forces are keeping rates low. And I think that is probably the more interesting story and probably the bigger reason why the Fed does find itself with less ability to respond to situations like this. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On a summer night in Paris, American artist Lee Krasner is drifting off to sleep when the phone rings. On the line, news that her husband, Jackson, is dead. Jackson, as in the painter Jackson Pollock. He might, to this day, be the most mythologized figure in American art. But how much of the story that we've been told about him is just that, a myth? 
on Death of an Artist Season 2, Krasner and Pollock, the story about how the art world changed forever, and the story of the artist who reset the market for American abstract painting. Just maybe not the one you're thinking of. Listen to Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To what extent do you worry as all of this unfolds that we may gradually lose the role of being the world's reserve currency? I mean, since World War II, that's been an enormous advantage that most Americans aren't aware of, don't pay attention to. But somebody once said to me, it's probably worth more than all of our aircraft carriers in terms of being a net advantage to the country. To what extent do you worry that that gradually decays? I think, if anything, what we've seen is that it's getting stronger. And let me give you some evidence. Again, interest rates would be the first evidence. We have exploded our debt, and yet the world continues to gobble it up, which means they want dollar-denominated assets. And to be clear, it's treasuries. But if you look at one thing that we do well, one thing that we export, you know, I always said President Trump should have looked at all the financial assets we're exporting. He would have loved to see the trade surplus there. But we export lots and lots of dollar assets public government debt, private bonds, commercial paper, things like that. The world still wants it. Every month we run these trade deficits, we're effectively selling financial assets to the world to pay for our imports. Moreover, if you look overseas, and the Bank for International Settlements keeps track of this, people love dollars so much that they're beginning to issue their own dollar liabilities overseas. So places outside that aren't backstopped by the U.S. government, 
are doing so. And the BIS estimates there's about $13 trillion in dollar-denominated debt issued outside the U.S. And it continues to grow. And it's, it's just a huge amount of dollar-denominated debt. If you add that $13 trillion, there's about $20 trillion of dollar assets that we've exported to the world. So close to $30 trillion. And what makes that interesting is that it's going to be really hard for someone to break into a market that big. If you want to compete with the dollar as a dominant currency of the world, you've got to be able to scale up. And at least in the near term future, I don't see that happening. I know people talk about China, for example. China has a digital currency, but China's institutions are not great. As you know, if anything, China's going more socialistic. They're cracking down on tech industry. They're doing things that really don't install confidence in the system over there. Moreover, they have strict capital control, so it's hard to move money in and out of China. So China, maybe 50, 100 years down the road, might be a threat. But in the near term, if anything, what we see is during crisis, the demand for U.S. government debt actually goes up because people want a safe store of value, which is ironic. I mean, go back to 2008, right? The housing crisis started in the U.S., what happened? People raced to buy treasuries from around the world. It pushed the dollar up. It pushed treasury prices up, pushed interest rates down. So we're in a kind of a bizarre world where people are literally knocking at our door, knocking at the treasury secretary's door. Please give me more debt. Now, I want to be clear. We can at some point abuse that privilege. We need to be mindful and careful, not just spend willy nilly. But for the time being, it looks like we still have that exorbitant privilege you've talked about. Claire Christensen and I wrote a book on China and Trump a couple of years ago that I think was very, very well received and sort of captured what at the time Xi Jinping was doing. But he, since then, has really made almost a 180 degree turn from the Deng Xiaoping model and is really becoming more of a Maoist. And the things he's doing to the economy, the things he's doing, you know, they took the highest paid and most popular movie star in China has been disappeared. They argue because of taxes. The billionaires have all been intimidated. It's almost like Xi Jinping decided that there was this alternative competitive model beginning to grow and that for the party to retain its monopoly, you had to crush the model, which is the opposite of what Deng Xiaoping had suggested. And so I would say today, while I worry a lot about the Chinese militarily, I worry less about them economically than I did three years ago. I don't know if you have any similar sense of watching how they're operating. I think that's right. In fact, I read a recent article in the Wall Street Journal. I forget who the author was, but it spoke to this transformation of Xi Jinping. We see evidence of that. He's cracked down on cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency is illegal there in China now. He's cracked down on some of these big real estate conglomerates over there. And to be clear, they do have internal contradictions, too much debt, things like that, that will, if they don't address, will create problems. But it is striking to me that he wants to go and try socialism again. I thought we've had enough evidence to suggest that won't work, but <laughs> he's headed down that path. And that's the kind of thing I think that really, over the long run, is going to undermine China's ability to compete. That plus, you know, their demographic situation, as you know, is really horrible. The one-child policy, their population growth rate, you know, is going to go down dramatically, which is going to create huge problems in the future for them. There's at least one projection that our population will pass theirs late in this century because we continue both through migration and by having a higher birth rate, we continue to grow and that they actually have I an mean, amazing scale of decline in total population. 
Meanwhile, India is cheerfully growing like crazy. South Korea is kind of the forerunner of that because it turned out that if you really want to slow the number of births, give women a chance to get off the farm and work and live in an apartment, and they just don't have very many children. I mean, so the South Koreans actually had the biggest decline per person per capita of childbirth in the world, and the Japanese have a similar problem now. You mentioned one of the things I candidly don't understand very well, and that's the whole notion of cryptocurrency. I was talking over the weekend with somebody whose son is now deeply involved in a company that will be the largest Bitcoin mining company in the United States. And since I don't have a clue what that is, I'm curious as an economist, as you watch all this, what's your take on cryptocurrency? Well, I think there's different types of cryptocurrency, but Bitcoin obviously is the most famous. Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies like that are very speculative. At this point, it's a bit of a gamble. You know, it, it depends on how much others want to use it. But the original motivation for cryptocurrency was to come up with an alternative form of money, a medium of exchange. And Bitcoin really isn't a medium of exchange. There's some places that take it, but it's largely being used as a way to store value and hopefully you gain value along the way. I think it's more interesting where cryptocurrency is going is like stable coins. And these are a form of cryptocurrency that's backed up by solid assets like treasuries, cash, maybe commercial paper. And those are providing a useful service. They're filling a niche that isn't being met by banks, by money market funds, a form of liquidity. And what's interesting is as these things begin to kind of emerge, and we call these fintech companies, they're trying to provide alternative ways for people to have access to money, including the unbanked. It looks like Biden administration is cracking down on what stable coins will be able to do, even Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. The SEC commissioner, Gary Gensler, came out with this talk where he's really going to treat these things as an investment. So it's, it's going to kind of remove some of the innovation. There is a little bit of a Wild West feel to it, but that's where you discover new markets, new opportunities. And it looks like even in our country, it's going to be tapped down a little bit. But I do think it's a useful innovation and it won't go away anytime soon. It's fascinating. So to go back and summarize, as you've thought since you wrote your article on not worrying about inflation, how do you see the next couple of years evolving? I mean, is it? it's clearly not going to be a Jimmy Carter hyperinflation moment, but do you see inflation just gradually declining as a concern, or do you see, if we can mop up the various supply chain shortages do things begin to return to normal in 22 or 23? Yeah, I think that's exactly what's going to happen is we're going to see a sharp decline in the inflation rate over the next two years. And I'm not alone. If you look at the bond market, they have a forecast of inflation. So these are people who have skin in the game. They're trading bonds. And you can tease out of that a forecast of inflation. But they all show inflation returning between 2 and 3% over the next two years. And, and then eventually settling down close to 2%, which is what the Fed is targeting. And I think that makes sense, again, given that most of this inflation is supply-side bottlenecks, it will eventually get worked out if markets are allowed to do their magic. Now, you know, the flip side of this is, well, what about the $3.5 trillion, $5 trillion package that you mentioned that gets through, right? We just had, you know, big stimulus packages. There's been a lot of debt that's built up over the past few years. And the way I think about that is if we continue to get package after package like that, then I would start to worry about you know, the Friedmanite version of it, too much inflation. But as we've seen, you know, it looks like it's going to be hard to get even this package through, and it's not going to be a repeat. In order to get an inflation, inflation is a persistent rise in prices. You need a persistent growth in money and government debt. 
above and beyond what we've had. And I just think that's not in the cards politically. I mean, I think Republicans will take the House back next year. I just think even the Democratic Party, you know, Joe Manchin, Senator Manchin, there are checks in our system that will prevent us from having to worry about that type of inflation moving forward. That's great. I really appreciate your joining us. We're going to have a link to your recent articles about inflation and also your 2012 book, Boom and Bust Banking, The Causes and Cures of the Great Recession. They'll be on our show page at newtsworld.com. And I hope we can stay in touch with you as you continue to evaluate and watch the economy. And I think that all of our listeners will have found this to be a very useful conversation. So I'm very grateful that you would take the time to chat with us. Well, thank you, Speaker Gingrich. The honor is all mine. Thank you to my guest, David Beckworth. You can read more about inflation and the disruption of the global supply chain on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You may know Jackson Pollock, the painter famous for his iconic drip paintings. But what do you know about his wife, artist Lee Krasner? On Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock, the story of the artist who reset the market for American abstract painting, just maybe not the one you're thinking of. Listen to Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.